Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm pleased to say that in London, Themos Fiotakis joins us now, the UBS co-head of FX and Rates. And Themos, I want to begin with something that's front and centre for the world of politics, but certainly not front and centre for global markets. And that's the potential of a government shutdown in the United States of America. When the clients call you, Themos, and ask you, what does it mean? What are the consequences? What do you say? Well, long term, no uh, U.S. Uh, legislative body has uh, basically allowed this to go over the uh, cliff in a way that disrupts the uh, payment flows for uh, the U.S. So the long term, it's probably something that will mean revert. In the short term, it can cause some noise, and particularly for money markets. Uh, as the government runs up and down its um, its cash balances, uh, it creates significant uh, ex- excess or um, or, or uh, less than that supply in uh, in money markets, and that's what's the most important short-term impact. Well, famous in the money markets and in the uh, the very front end of the treasury curve, you can get these kind of little kinks, and they kind of account for when you might get a shutdown and when that's things right. will reopen again. Elsewhere, though, does this actually have any impact for the FX market, etc.? Uh, not really. We've done a detailed study. This has a lot to do this with a lot of fixed income instruments and how they trade against one another. But uh, in terms of money market directions, not that much. The theme so far, theme was it's a weaker dollar. It's been a dollar that's crept lower, 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 had its worst year in a decade on the dollar index last year and continues to plunge through three-year lows. On my screen, weaker against the euro once again. We had someone from Deutsche Bank last week on this program saying that we could get to 130 on euro dollar sooner than you think. Themos, what takes us to 130 from 122.64 on my screen? Uh, well, uh, 130 is our long-term target as well. Uh, maybe not as quickly as we have gone so far, but that's the direction of travel. There's a lot of things uh, going on. First of all, the dollar is still expensive. Uh, secondly, policy normalization is not priced outside of the U.S., so the fact that the rest of the world is growing quite handsomely uh, means that uh, there is uh, more to price in currencies outside of the U.S., um, and at mm. the same time, what is hugely important is that uh, <laughs> typically when financial conditions, you get this. You get weaker dollar, you get higher oil prices, you get higher uh, yields right. as equities rally. And this is uh, a good kind of reflationary dynamic. Uh, good morning, everyone. John Farrow in New York. I'm Tom Keen in London. A Friday, and it's a Friday to get briefed on market dynamics and, of course, a huge focus on Washington, but also Almost weekend reading to get to next week, which will be spirited the same, the least, and perhaps we'll see President Trump and Davos later uh, in the week. Timo Fiatakis with us. Uh, he is with uh, UBS. Timos, when I look at the dollar dynamics and I look at exogenous shocks and it could occur, to me, one of the great exogenous shocks last year was a single headline by Governor Carney in the Bank of England, where there was just one point where he said, just almost in a whisper, there is no inflation. You people see inflation. I get that. You told us an hour ago you're looking for three-ish inflation, which is a lot. How do you get there? What is the catalyst to finally jumpstart a higher rate of price change? 
So, this is a very good question, as always. Uh, to begin with, there are different things when we talk about inflation. When you're talking about underlying core PCE, it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of one-off components that will fall off next year, and will take you to somewhere around 1.7, 1.8 in core PCE, which is not astonishing, but at the very least, it's better than where we are here. That's one layer. The second layer, which goes from uh, core to headline, particularly when it comes to uh, CPI against PCE, is the uh, commodities um, and commodities, you know, if you compare uh, from the middle of the year last year until the current levels, oil prices have almost uh, doubled. And that's going to have an impact which will show up in the middle of the year and will take headline CPI higher. Uh, depending on how higher oil prices go from here, you could end up slightly shy of 3% on headline CPI. Is that something that should scare us completely? No, it's going to be temporary. But at the same time, it's going to... Um, revive some confidence because the risk was that we would continue to print at super low prints uh, so far. Within that, in, you know, super low prints is the parsing almost on an international basis of goods inflation, it's not there, or service sector inflation. In America, I see it in the Cleveland CPI, which to me gives me much more of like the reality higher CPI. Are we looking at inflation correctly as it comes over to dollar dynamics and FX dynamics? Or are we, are we askewed because of goods dynamics in China? I think that's a very good observation. Uh, I think that uh, particularly if you look at uh, goods in the U.S., uh, due to past dollar strength and what's going on globally with this inflation, it's not just China, it's also the huge output gap in Europe as well. Um, when you're looking at goods inflation, that has, uh, you know, it's about a quarter of uh, core PCE and it has been near zero for the last few years, right? That's a huge disinflationary pressure. You need the global output gap to narrow uh, for that to start picking up. And that's why we have not been on the side of high inflation up until uh, recently. Yeah. And we're not, we don't expect that now either. Just gradual grind higher from current levels, which should be healthy for the market. Thimos, that's the macro backdrop. How do central banks respond to the world you've just described? So, for now, most central banks are warning for a tighter pace uh, of adjustment or normalization. Uh, I would add one more point to what you said. Uh, it's also about what's priced, right? So, um, we can talk about the front end in the U.S., but with the long end of the curve at 2.6, destined to rise, I don't know, to 2.7 this year in our forecast, and probably approach some you know, slight sigh of 3% next couple of years, uh, a lot is already priced in. Uh, the European bond market, on the other hand, and the Japanese bond market, the yields there are too low. They're expensive bond markets. And the market is trying to gauge when uh, these yields will adjust, when these central banks will adjust. And when they adjust, uh, it's going to have an impact on those bond markets. And that translates into uh, the currency front-loading some of that, which is part of what's happening. Thimos, are you saying that it's the front end in Europe that needs to adjust more than anywhere else? Uh, the overall uh, level of the curve and uh, the long end as well. Uh, and probably, uh, particularly outside of Germany, the curve can actually steepen. So as the front end adjusts uh, across countries, probably outside of Germany, uh, the long end should adjust even further. I, I look, Simos, just, just one more question, if we could, uh, uh, quickly here. At the linkage that we see of dollar dynamics and FX dynamics with gold, is there any linkage still? It seems like the old maxims are just out the door, out the window. Absolutely, but it's not just that dollar, it's also the level of real rates. Uh, and, um, and real rates in the U.S. are fair. 
they're where they should be, if not on the high side, which has been something that has anchored uh, gold uh, a lot more than other commodities, which are clo- more closely correlated to, um, to oil, uh, so, to, sorry, to dollar, yeah. as in, such as oil. This is a joy. This is something John Farrow and I have really looked forward to. Kona Haig, who I first met through Aluminum, uh, is truly expert at the detailed fundamental of the softs. It's a British thing. John, you have to have a British accent uh, to do this. It's just part of the act. And it is the romance of the commodity business. Forget about something boring like oil, you know, something like that. It's, it's the part that we all learned about which is making opportunities in things like cocoa and things like coffee. Kona Higgins with uh, EDA and F-Man. Kona, the coffee market now seems to be multinational. It seems to be all the same physical characteristics of an agricultural commodity. What's the demand side of coffee look like? We talk in oil, demand's better, oil up. Is that elasticity there in coffee? Um, so, no, unlike the industrial commodities like um, energy, or I suppose it doesn't move with economic cycles. This is a trend that's very long term. So at the moment, coffee demand globally is growing about 2% per year. There was a time it was actually going about 3%. This was when you were seeing the Asian emerging markets in particular moving away from tea into coffee. And that's definitely been compensating for a slowdown in growth in the Mm -hmm. mature markets such as Europe and America. But don't get me wrong, even in Europe and America, compared to consumption of sugar, which is static to maybe declining, coffee (laughs) consumption is still very much a a desirable commodity and growing still. Within that is the elephant in the room, China. And we talk about China and, you know, John Farrow and I have 10 or 15 topics on China that we circle around, but we don't get down to the nitty gritty. Like I understand that pork is a huge part of the Chinese inflation dynamic and I would believe part of the Chinese diet. Where does coffee, as just one example of a soft commodity, fit into China's day-to-day life? So it's definitely not as a staple commodity, nothing like pork, as you mentioned, or even grains. We are talking about a substitution away from your traditional tea, green tea, jasmine tea, and a a marked shift from that towards coffee. And this is definitely a Western influence. So as you start seeing more and more coffee shops like the Starbucks or independent yeah. coffee shops start coming into um, into China, we are seeing a lot of the middle class yeah. consumers really tapping into uh, that. Uh, Kona, I can't see John Farrow drinking, sipping jasmine tea down at Fortnum and Mason. I just can't. I am caffeine free. Believe oh, it or not. Are. Yeah, yeah. Believe it or not. For, Such a, for a number of life. years now. Kona, you said two, two important things and it was on the middle class. The middle mm-hmm. class in China and the consumption of, uh, of coffee. Does that extend to India as well? In the urban cities, yes. So for sure in the rural areas, no. But once you start seeing um, the, the Delhis, the, the Shanghais, the Bombays, Mumbais, that is the countries, those are the cities where high urban population growth is seeing a big demand for that sort of quick coffee fix, that caffeine yeah. boost, which is associated with big city dwellers. Because the big EM bricks trade of many, many years ago was to go long soft commodities, go long things like coffee and meat as well, because it was going to be consumed by a rising middle class. And seemingly 
these prices could only go higher, higher, higher. Is that still the theme here, Kona, or has it changed? No, I think that theme is still very much there. It's just that lately, because agricultural commodities have been so well supplied, prices have just been flat to doing nothing. I think the stories sort of disappeared, but it's 100% there. Um, the middle class wants to move away from carbohydrate and basic staples like wheat and rice, and they're definitely moving towards high protein. So it's the porks, it's the chickens, it's the beefs, it's the dairies, milk, and you name it. High protein, so much. high caffeine. It sounds like Tom Keane. This was this in, was in amazing. The morning. Yeah, you got that right, yeah. um, uh, John Farrell. This was amazing. We got through a discussion with Kona Hague without talking about Bitcoin. That's soft. Do you want to do that? No, we shouldn't do that. We did that already, and she almost stormed out. Did honestly. she? I wouldn't she blame did. her. Isaac Boltanski is more than interesting. Uh, he is a claim coming out of the troubled asset relief program tarp over to compass point research he and lucas devas write a hyper hyper detailed note on all the washington dynamics we protect the copyright of our guests we're not going to send you out the note isaac how do you put i'm just curious how do the two of you put your note together it's extraordinary how detailed it is you. Uh, there is a plethora of information that comes out of D.C., and I think our job is to try to track all of it, synthesize it, and make it digestible for institutional investors. If the Democrats spoke to you today, Senator Schumer and others, with your, 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 the, 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 the fire hose of data you have coming in, can they actually deflect shutdown over to blaming the Republicans? You know, I think, Tom, the way this is going to play out is it's going to be viewed as a pox on both their houses. And in that scenario, you have to expect a lengthier shutdown if it does occur. Because as we all know, sinking polls tend to catalyze lawmakers. And if the polls hold up, which right now they show general blame for Republicans and Democrats at around the low 30s, then neither side is going to be incentivized to blink. Isaac, right now, the market's not blinking. The market's shrugging this off. In terms of the price action on my screen, futures firmer. Yes, the dollar's weaker, but the dollar's been weak for over a year now. Treasury yields climbing higher. I would say that most people on Wall Street aren't really too bothered about this. I don't see the urgency on the screen. Do you see any urgency from the clients you speak to, from the investor base you speak to? And what are they asking you about what's happening in Washington, D.C.? You won't hear this often from a D.C. policy analyst, but I have been telling clients to look away from the nonsense in my city right now. The, the reality is that the market impact from a government shutdown at this point should be muted because it doesn't encompass the debt ceiling, which is perhaps the most important uh, component of all of the fiscal fights. And as we've seen in the past, the missed economic activity will be recovered at a later point. So all the folks who aren't getting paid during this, all the contracts that get held up, will be made up. The only cautionary note within that viewpoint is I have sent some degree of, of uh, jitteriness among equity investors. And so there could be a push to use this government uh, shutdown to justify a risk-off bias that was already present. An, ex- My message an excuse today, to sell though, and maybe not a reason. 
a- absolutely right. My, my advice today is we've got to look past this and realize that D.C. has delivered on the one thing that it could have possibly delivered on, which was the tax cuts. There wasn't much that was going to happen this year. And I feel highly confident that the debt ceiling is not going to be used in a game of chicken between these two parties. Isaac, how many sections of the Democratic Party were there are there? I would say that within the media, over the last X number of years, the focus has been hugely on the Republicans on the Hill. And we forget about how fractious the Democratic Party has been in our history. How fractious is the Democratic Party right now? There's an old line that trying to get Democrats to caucus together and, and agree on a bill is like trying to make cats walk in line. And it's been interesting <laughs> because this year, uh, excuse me, this Congress, they've actually been incredibly unified. And I think it's important to note that there is a bit of a shifting of the guard going on here. And Chuck Schumer has been able to hold his party in line and is really orchestrating um, a cohesive pushback here. He's only lost one of his members in the Senate, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, a state that the president won by 42 points. And so it's actually been impressive uh, that he's been able to hold those Democrats in line. So, Isaac, help me out with something. If getting the Democrats together is like herding cats, and we know how divided the GOP is right now, why are you so confident that the debt ceiling issue isn't going to be an issue at all? Sure, it's a fair question. It's a... uh, it's a belief that ultimately the markets can dictate action in D.C. And if there is a sign that the debt ceiling is being used as a uh, bargaining chip unfairly, there will be a market reaction. And uh, while most Congress people don't have Bloomberg or CNBC, CNBC or any of the Ooh. market Ooh. news Ooh. on there, excuse Ooh. me, yes, um, <laughs> Uh, they do have, uh, they do see the screen when there's a three or five percent sell off. And so that's why I feel confident that the market can force action on the debt ceiling. Tom Keen, um, a note coming from an official, a headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal right now. The President of the United States is said to stay in Washington, D.C. until the shutdown is averted. So that could have some consequences for his trip next week, potentially, to Dallas, Switzerland, if this hasn't been dealt with by then. Yeah, and that percolated in the zeitgeist this morning. If you've seen that headline, I don't see that here in our London studios, John, but if you see that headline, uh, that really begins to turn into news, the rumor and speculation that was seen earlier. Um, I don't have any, you know, I'm I'm not doing a Michael Beschloss act, but I don't understand how a president travels during a government shutdown. I I find that bizarre, but, uh, you know, we'll have to see. Yeah. you would, assume, you would assume, Isaac, that he doesn't travel to Davos, Switzerland if the government does shut down. Is that something you would assume? I, I think you're absolutely right. Look, the, the optics of him traveling were already yeah. suboptimal. So it would be, it would be much worse yeah. given a, if there was a government shutdown. And, and we should say, John Farrell, this is Kasia Klemensinska. I'll get it right. Klemensinska, there it is, of Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg First Word. And this is from, quote, unquote, an official, which, you know, Usually coming out of Bloomberg, uh, that's got some substance to it. Yeah. Averted. 
There it is. Isaac, what what do the Democrats want to get out of this? All of this, you know, I, I think I can speak for 142% of our listeners. We're all sort of exhausted by it. It's your fault, Isaac. But what, what do the Democrats want to get out of this? Where do they want to be one week, three weeks? The shutdown's done. We all kiss and make up. We get to the debt ceiling. We all kiss and make up. Where do they want to be as the campaign season begins for November 6th? Sure. It, Democrats recognize that this is their only leverage point this year. This I, funding I totally agree. Because I mean, that's the heart of the matter, vote. right? Right. So they want they want it all. They want the, they want everything they can get. Realistically, what they will hope to get out of this is a deal over DACA, funding for the Children Health Insurance Program, and I think if you get that up from the six years that's currently being offered to ten years, and a deal on just DACA. Democrats would blink. Um, there isn't much optimism about a broader immigration deal at this point. So, so Isaac, get, reality, me, get, get me to the midterms. You get a deal on DACA. Is that enough to salt the electorate? I think right now this is about uh, placating to the base. And the base, um, the Democratic Party, has shown that the DACA issue is important to them. It is a central pillar for them. It's also an issue that many Democrats uh, feel they can uh, run on in certain congressional districts. I don't think that alone is enough to deliver them the House or the Senate, but I still believe that the odds heavily favor Democrats taking the House and Republicans holding the Senate. Andrew Bishop um, is quietly legendary at Eurasia Group, working with Dr. Bremer, among others, um, and we're working on sort of not only Europe, but the interdependencies of Europe and the synthesis of Europe with the rest of the global uh, economy. He wrote up with courts last summer on Germany and other nations as well. Andrew Bishop with the European Briefing right now with Eurasia uh, Group. Andrew, Andrew, thrilled to have you with us. It, it, Chancellor Merkel, I believe, is not going to have a government shutdown. Perhaps she'll actually get to Davos. What is the strength and power of the most powerful leader in Europe after a coalition battle, and frankly, after just the years that have gone by. Uh, good morning. I, I think that's a good point. Merkel is, you know, sort of towards the, the tail end of her of her uh, uh, tenure, uh, but she's strong enough, especially when combined with President Macron, to send a powerful message to, to President Trump next week. And I think that's that's really the spirit behind her going once again to Davos. Uh, and I believe she and Macron will both yeah. be speaking on Wednesday, so two days before Trump. We've all been fascinated by the frequent flyer miles on Air France that uh, Mr. Macron's been, uh, he's been on a road like I, I believe I've never seen. Let's back up. What's the why? Why has Mr. Macron hit the road uh, before these important meetings? Uh, I think that the main reason is that he perceives oppor- opportunity. He sees a window of opportunity and the fact that Merkel, as you just said, is busy with domestic issues uh, and President Trump neither has the interest nor necessarily the appeal uh, to really be the world's leader, you know. And, and so President Xi has seen that opportunity as well, but he's taking a much slower approach. President Macron is essentially d- doing the same thing as Xi, but in a, in a much more uh, opportunistic and tactical way, really trying to find little crises like when uh, Lebanon's prime minister was, was you know, held in, in Riyadh to, to, to score some points. What can Merkel achieve in her final term, which is most likely to be her final term, Andrew? 
I think the, the the greatest thing she could achieve is to to maintain uh, the German policy sort of on a on a stable uh, track. I mean, one of the big uh, concerns is that you know yet another grand coalition will further aggravate voters who feel like they don't really have a choice that all centrist parties are the same and that they're banding together. Uh, and, and that's part of what's driven all of this populism in the first place. So I think the best thing she could achieve is, is actually delivering results that uh, convince voters that centrist parties remain worth uh, trusting. Dare I say that this term and her four terms might look back on what's going to be perceived as a lost decade. And I raised this question, Andrew, because in terms of the reforms that came before her, economists are looking at Germany right now and seeing an opportunity squandered an opportunity to really invest into the economy, to build our infrastructure and to continue the hard work that was done in the 1990s, Andrew. It seems now that the German government is very content building up a surplus, not spending too much money and just hoping things continue as they are. Is this a squandered opportunity, Andrew? Yeah, I think a lost decade is a bit of a strong term in the sense that, you know, Germany has been performing extremely well, both politically in terms of stability uh, and economically. Now, to your point, uh, that was partly a legacy of what had been laid down before she joined uh, uh, government. And so there is a question, you're right, about what comes next. I think the bigger issue for Germany, of course, everyone's been talking about investment, and that's particularly important in the tech sector. Uh, but the bigger question is, you know, how does a German economy that's highly reliant on exports continue to dominate in a world that's going to be increasingly protectionist? Well, is it as simple as the euro is a fiction? And they're looking at a euro that ought to be 150, 160, whatever, that, that their distortion of their domestic flows, a distortion, as Madame Lagarde mentions, of their trade surplus is strictly the European experiment? Uh, you know, I mean, we at, at your age group look at more at the politics of the of the, the issue rather than the sort of valuation of the, the asset itself. But um, I think there, there definitely is a question about Germany's long-term sustainability on that front. Yeah. And, and the, the thing is, now that, you know, the Greek crisis seems to be behind us, uh, the real question is whether she and Macron will be able to reform the Eurozone. And we're unfortunately not extremely hopeful about that, both because of her domestic concerns and because they, they don't meet eye to eye on that issue. We've been talking with Andrew Bishop of the Eurasia Group. Uh, and in talking to him, we were really focused on Germany. And, Andrew, we've been really remiss here of taking our eye off Russia. There was a point where Russia was in the news day after day after day. And I don't mean the Mueller scandal and, you know, the Mueller investigation, rather, and all that. But just with Russia, there was play in the London press today of Mr. Putin uh, taking some kind of ice-cold baptismal bath or whatever uh, in Russia. <laughs> what is the state of Mr. Putin? He's not going to Davos, is he? I don't believe he is going to Davos this year. Um, and the reason why you're not, not hearing about Russia is because uh, Putin has nothing to do. He can just sit back and relax. Everything he's been orchestrating in terms of weakening Europe, to a certain extent weakening uh, the United States, and gaining power projection in the Middle East has been working. So for him to change anything at this stage would be, uh, would be an unnecessary, unnecessary risk. I, 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 an unnecessary risk, you can just sit back and watch the follies continue or that, then I guess it comes down to the prescriptive desire of what the president should do in Davos. What should the president do as he approaches an important speech a week from today? 
So I think what President Trump is going to, going to try to do in Davos is address three different audiences. The first is obviously the Davos crowd itself with a, a clear message, which is, you know, the United States remains the world's leading economy, invest in the U.S., we're reliable. The second message is probably going to be geared towards this base, and it's going to be quite different, right? It's going to be more about um, maybe not insulting, but trying to send a message to the global elite uh, that they can't get away with murder, etc. And then the third thing is he's probably going to be trying to send a, a discreet message to China as well, saying, you know, you were here last year, I'm here this well, year, and we're, we're still in the G2 situation at, at, uh, at worst. But that's the heart of it. And I, I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Bremer at uh, Eurasia Group as we began our year with the Eurasia Group Top Risks. You just used the word discreet. This is not a discreet uh, sender of message, is it? No, I'm, I'm not sure he's going to be discreet per se. Uh, yeah. But no, no, yeah, I definitely wouldn't go for discreet, actually. Um, but he's he's going to be uh, trying to tailor his message. That I do believe, and I think there's a difference between the president being loud spoken uh, and him not being strategic. And he actually is quite, um, you know, quite a great communicator if you think in pure strategy terms. So I think he's going to be nuanced uh, in in his uh, I, tailored messages. Boy, I wish I could climb on board that. My answer: I don't have an opinion, folks, about what the president's going to do at Davos, other than it's, to me, it's. Uh, beyond unpredictable what he will do. What will you listen for from his entourage? I believe he's bringing 222 people with him. I'm kidding, folks. But it's a huge entourage. It's, I mean, basically, am I right, Andrew Bishop? America descends on Davos. Is that an exaggeration? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the United States has regularly sent a, a fairly large delegation, especially on the business side, to Davos. So the big change here is the president's visit. I think the last time was in 2000. That's really the big change. The, the huge American contingent isn't particularly surprising. Okay. I think in terms of what we're, what we're going to be looking at is whether he's in, in sort of dissonance vis-a-vis his entourage. I, I mean, you know, there's a clum, not a clumsy, but there's just this odd news flow this morning of whether the president, given the shutdown, and I mean the president getting to Sunday or getting to Monday, forget about uh, jetting over to uh, Geneva or Zurich, wherever, and, and heading up uh, to Davos. Will he go if there's a shutdown? I, I find it unimaginable that he will travel if there's a shutdown, but am I wrong on that? Uh, first of all, I, th- I think he, he, you know, he could go even if there's a shutdown. I, I'm not really? sure that he is the kind of person to actually um, cancel his plans for that reason. But, but more importantly, I think it goes the other way around. I think um, we're more likely to see Republicans uh, not cave, but you know, compromise on the DACA issue uh, in order to avoid a shutdown or in order to sort of pass a, a very short-term CR that will allow the president to, to go to Davos without a wrinkle. The U.S. dollar trading at the weakest level in three years. Here to help us understand what's going on is Alan Ruskin. He is Deutsche Bank's global head of G10FX strategy, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Alan, thank you very much for being here. So what what explanation are you offering uh, clients and customers about the weakness of the U.S. dollar and uh, its pervasiveness? Well, I think what we're seeing is a continuation of what we saw much for much of really last year. And last year's story was one where, um, particularly after the French election, you had a re-rating of the euro, uh, both in terms of political risk and then, I think, you know, coincident to that, really, a re-rating in terms of uh, what was going on on the economy side of things. And the market has been also reconsidering what's going to go on in terms of ECB policy and the changes and the retreat from really emergency easing that you've had in the ECB. And is in fact, 
um, much more intent in terms of uh, trading off that than what we see from the Federal Reserve. Well, when do you think that we're when do you think we're going to find out? I mean, th- is this just going to you to trade at these levels until that is resolved? Um, we, you know, seem to be front loading a lot of the euro positive news so far. So uh, um, we definitely see uh, um, a more constructive view on the euro early in the year than we might have anticipated. Really, it's you know, it's it's one where um, if. There is going to be challenges to the view. I think it will have to come more from the dollar positive side than the euro negative side. So in that sense, Mm. sometime later this year, the market will, I think, price in more Fed uh, tightening than they're currently pricing in. And that could be, you know, a moment in which the dollar would actually get some relief. Is there a bet now, Alan? Is there a, a trade? Is there a consensus trade? Is there a big bet being placed? Not as big as you might think. I think, yeah. uh, you know, we started the year with euro leverage positions um, fairly flat, uh, surprisingly so. And it was really asset managers that were long euros. And that was more a story, I think, of building up uh, long euro exposure, um, particularly as it relates to uh, equity markets and particularly as it relates to hedge ratios. The foreigners' hedge ratios were way too high in euro and they now wanted some euro exposure. So I think that was uh, you know, a shift we saw last year. This year, in the beginning of this year, you are seeing some buildup in leverage positions. And as we know, that can be more fly-by-night, as it were. So you can get a squeeze of that position yeah, going forward. I really agree with you that Everybody, what what Pim and I saw, Alan, into the end of the year was massive ambiguity and uncertainty, a lack of belief in calls, and it seems with a vengeance that slammed in in the last three or four weeks. Do you sense that at Deutsche Bank? I mean, I look at George Cerevelis's published call uh, on stronger euro. People are really starting to stake out territory, aren't they? Uh, much more so, Tom. Definitely, yeah. 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 I think uh, uh, we've had internally, obviously, much more de- debate really on the framework behind currencies than I would say I've had really, you know, for at least ten years since two thousand and eight. So that tells you something about the uncertainty in terms of the actual underlying forces driving currencies right now. Uh, but I think people have uh, staked things out. Um, we've seen in the past, of course, that the first couple of weeks of a year are not necessarily, uh, you know, indicative of underlying trend. Really. So I think one has to be a little bit cautious. And I think one would be definitely cautious if those leverage positions move up, you know, yeah. another notch, really. I think that, you know, that's, yeah, that would well be a said. cautionary yeah. sign. All right. So uh, we've got your call there. But I want to just step back for a second. Commodity-based currencies. I know you're G10 strategist, but where, where does the commodity play come into, uh, into focus for, for, for Forex traders? Well, I think the euro is still very important because pretty much everyone gets caught in the draft of the euro. The euro is more, more or less the antipole of the dollar. So it's on the other side of the dollar and it sort of drags everyone with it. So that creates a natural propensity for the dollar to be weaker. But I think the commodity currency side has had a quite a special story over the last month or so. Um, around the middle of December, commodity prices were incredibly weak. And then they went on a real race uh, to the top yeah. side, um, led in the no 
small part by oil, uh, but it was more than oil. It was, you know, base metals, Sixty-three twenty-seven right now for yeah. Uh, WTI. Yeah. But I think what we feel there is that, uh, if anything, we're going to see some topping out in terms of certainly the energy complex, because uh, at these kind of oil prices, U.S. supply is going to kick in. You're going to see well, those rig counts going up again and uh, constraint to the top side on, okay, on oil. Okay, beautifully said. And that goes to this word, folks. Which I, the word I use in lectures is responsiveness. And the fancy Ruskin word is elasticities. There's a new elasticity in oil supply. Are those same elasticities out there in other commodities? Like if you look at Brazil, Alan, and you want to play Brazil, are the responsivenesses of copper the same as they used to be? No, I'd be cautious there, really. I mean, you know, a lot of these other commodities need huge capital expenditure um, to really lift up uh, supply, and there needs to be spare capacity. Uh, and I think, you know, there on the oil side, you know that there's plenty of spare capacity at the right price, effectively. Yeah, I think you can say that less confidently with most other commodities. And Alan, I want to just turn your attention to politics and the reaction that currency markets have when elections surprise. And I know, for example, if we go back to the second election for Theresa May uh, in 2017 and the calls for the British pound, what it would do as a result of the election, what election now do you most look at and what are the different scenarios that you're gaming? Well, in the political sphere, obviously, we have the shutdown story here in the U.S. I think that's... Does that really that, matter to no, forex No, traders? not really, I don't think. I think it uh, tends to cap any enthusiasm that you could have in the dollar, theoretically, at least. Um, or it sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, right. But I don't think that's... That, that's obviously not the big one. Um, there is... A big story in Germany, of course, right? That the SPD is still voting as to whether you know they're prepared to go in with sort of a grand coalition with Merkel. Merkel is the bulwark that uh, holds the euro together to some extent, right? Mm. In terms of at least political terms. And is it surprising to you that there isn't as uh, there isn't a lot of cacophony, as Tom would say, or noise about the lack of a of a government in in Germany? Yeah, I think it's a sense that when it all comes out in the wash, uh, Merkel will still, you know, be chancellor effectively, and uh, uh, it'll all be good. So I think uh, there's an optimistic view there. Um, you know, what that future government will look like is it a grand coalition? Is a mm -hmm. so-called Jamaica-type coalition? Is Still in question, I think, but the, the feeling is that Merkel will come through in the end, even if you have another yeah. election. So that's a big one. And then the Italian election in March, in early March. I think that's that's certainly one that uh, could get the market uh, more interested. Mm. But there's nothing quite like the French election that we just had, uh, you know, obviously last year, I think, in terms of having ramifications for the currency market. Alan Ruskin with us with Deutsche Bank. Pim, I'm glad you mentioned cacophony because every time I say a four-syllable word, I get paid extra. I don't know if you knew that. That's why I rely on you. Yeah, you know, we go to four-syllable words as we can. Cacophony off the Oxford English Dictionary. Alan Ruskin has it on his desk. We have it on the Bloomberg Terminal. 1656 was the first citation for cacophony. Um, I want to go, Alan, and I don't want to get you in trouble here with your compliance people. So, you know, dance around this observation, which is you remember when foreign exchange strategy hedging speculation was of a different beast all you guys drove red ferraris and wrote out written tickets and everything was done over the phone 
The world is changing, and Pim Fox and I saw that this week with the FIC trading uh, at the different banks. And I don't want you to speak at, at all about Deutsche Bank. That would be inappropriate. But for the younger people listening who want to be Alan Ruskin, and Alan, there are a lot of them, is there a future in the ballet of foreign exchange? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, at least in the strategy area, um, I think uh, there's still room for people, for thought process where neural networks haven't quite caught up with really the cacophony of forces driving currencies. Oh, they still kind of need people in a sense. So I think that's, that's certainly the case. Um, at the same time, I think when you look at, uh, at least on the sell side, um, electronic trading is uh, certainly taking hold in a way in which there are fewer and fewer spot traders, for example. I think that would be a, a pattern that one can say across yeah. banks. Um, so it really depends where you are. You know, the, I think you want to be at the more knowledge end of the industry. Um, and that's probably the same for pretty much every industry. You know, I, I think, Pim, of what you and I saw this week with the banks. And you wonder, is it a one-off? You know, they had a bad quarter in trading. I get that. But... Or is there something bigger going on here? Well, the banks are turning into commodities, uh, with all due respect, uh, uh, Alan. I mean, you know, a lot of the services that banks offer are now being threatened by the advance of uh, technology, whether that is for the retail customer or even for the institutional customer. I'd be curious to know your <coughs> thoughts about Bitcoin. Everybody's talking about it, and it just defies real explanation because well, I keep hearing yeah. Bitcoin, I'm not so sure. And then the next sentence is, oh, but blockchain, that's great. That's a fabulous <laughs> thing. And I'm, I'm, I always try to put the two together and I confess I'm not smart enough to do so. I don't have any four-syllable words for it. I think you summed it up perfectly there, Pim. I think you know, people, I think, have question marks about Bitcoin as an asset. If you look at the underlying value in terms of, uh, you can't, uh, you know, assemb you can't essentially. Well, there's assess. nothing there, really. Right. I mean, yeah, that's that's very very difficult to assess. What you can see is volatility, right? And the extreme volatility uh, makes one think that this is not, you know, this is not the new gold, as it were, really, in terms of a stable yeah. long term asset, or it's not there <clears throat> yet and might not be there for a long long time. I think to your point in terms of blockchain as a technology, I think that you know, there's the perception that that can be used in a variety of different industries. I think Kodak has obviously put their foot forward. Um, so I think there's some logic there. Within this, Alan, is big moves, guys like big figure moves and that. Are, are, are we at a point where we could see big figure moves or do you just look at, like we look at a dampened VIX or we look at dampened FX vol, it's another quiet year, or do we see big figure moves? Tom, I think the arbiter on that is still the bond market, and the not things, the banks, not the central banks. No, I think less so. I think if the bond markets don't respond that much to the central banks, then uh, as we saw so far in terms of uh, Fed tightening, then I think that's less problematic. I think there are a couple of issues in terms of bond markets which suggest there is more volatility in the air. Um, one of them, of course, is inflation, and I think that is starting to turn up just slightly. I think there's just enough you just, forces. You just, I just got to tell you, Alan, you just got a 20% increase in the cost of your Amazon uh, monthly membership. Did I? Yeah. Oh, everybody, um, everybody did. Everybody that signed up, Amazon is raising the price of the Prime monthly membership by nearly 20%. How's that not inflation? 
Yeah, no, I think, you know, there's questions about what inflation we're measuring. Obviously, there's a lot of acid inflation, for one thing. So I think, you know, the, the, there's that as an issue for central bankers. But I think even in the metrics that we use, core PCE, really, which is the central bank's focus, I think you'll see the beginnings there of some uptick. You're seeing a little bit on the wage side. You're seeing lots of headlines about the tax reform passing on or getting passed on to higher wages, really. So I think that's going to be important. You're going to see it in terms of demand. We saw a soft patch in inflation in the middle of last year that related to what was happening about 18 months prior to that in the economy. As the economy has improved, so I think you're going to start to see some pickup there. And I think to the point in terms of a weaker dollar and stronger oil, all those forces are effectively saying, look here, um, it's going to all err to the top side. Now, if you get a little bit of inflation and the central banks are not adding to their balance sheets in the same way, then and those two forces, I think, in combination are actually going to tighten things up as far as the, the back in the bond market, and it's going to create more volatility. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.